And my dream has always been that this would be a nonpartisan bill because our lives are at stake in this bill. Those that vote against it, they're voting against one of the articles of the declaration that says this declaration is about the survival, the dignity, and well-being of indigenous peoples. That's Chief Willie Littlechild. He is a Cree leader, former member of parliament, former Truth and Reconciliation Commission commissioner. He's a treaty expert, he's a lawyer, and he's an international indigenous rights advocate who played a leading role in the development of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He's our guest today on the Akamema podcast. Tanse, Tawau, and welcome to the Akamema podcast. I'm your host, Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations. Akamemuk is a Plains Cree word for you all persevere, or in other words, let's keep going and don't give up. On this podcast, we discuss the leading issues facing First Nations peoples with top experts, with elders, and community leaders. And right now, one of the issues is Bill C-15, the legislation to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. If passed, and if this legislation achieves royal assent, this would affirm that the United Nations Declaration applies in Canada. Bill C-15 will require the Government of Canada, in consultation and cooperation with Indigenous peoples, to prepare an action plan that includes measures to address injustices, combat prejudice, and eliminate all forms of violence and discrimination against Indigenous people. And as I said in December, when the legislation was tabled by the Liberal government, this is a crucial tool for addressing systemic racism and closing the gap in the quality of life between First Nations and Canadians. The new bill provides a much needed framework to put the declaration into practice. Now that said, as with any legislation, there are both many hopes and many questions about the potential impact of Bill C-15. So to take a closer look, we're joined today by someone who has a long and deep understanding of the United Nations Declaration. In 1977, Chief Willie Littlechild was a member of the Indigenous Delegation to the United Nations. There, he chaired the working group that produced the first draft of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. He's a leading national and international Indigenous rights advocate. Chief Littlechild is a proud member of the Ermanskin Cree Nation. Treaty 6 Territory in Alberta. He is a former Progressive Conservative Member of Parliament, former Grand Chief of the Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations, as well as a former Commissioner on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he's also a member of the Order of Canada. Chief Willie Littlechild, Danse Tawau, and welcome to our Akamemuk podcast. Thank you. Let's start with the history of the United Nations Declaration. Tell us what led you and other First Nations people to go to the United Nations back in 1977. Thank you very much, uh, National Chief. Nigan Gakio, Tatam Skadnao, Xemantoniga, Nastin and Askomao, Emigoakta, Kiskao, Emiasik, Takamemoya, Kate, Takamemoya, Exon Askomon. So uh, thank you very much for the kind words, Chief. If I may reflect back to the instructions we received from the elders in relation to Akamemuk. I asked once our elders 
what is it really that you want us to try to achieve by going internationally? First of all, they said that the reason we called you in and asked you to consider going across the ocean to take up our issues was because our treaty, treaty number six, was being violated on a daily basis. And the elders, the spiritual leaders, and the leaders all were very concerned about that. And the advice of the elders was, we have to go back to the original place of our partnership, which is England, where the treaty was uh, agreed to with Queen Victoria. Before that could happen, actually, I was in the middle of writing my law exams, and Wounded Knee happened, if you remember, Mm -hmm. 1974, 75. Wounded Knee was uh, beginning to happen, and uh, there was a conference called for, and I was invited to go to the conference, but I was in the middle of my exams, and I asked my my cousin, late Eddie Bernstick, to go instead on my behalf, which he did. That's the genesis, actually, of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Mm-hmm. It started out as a statement of principles uh, from those meetings. In between that time, or right after that time, approximately, I had a phone call from uh, late Chief George Manuel, who was then had just been elected the president of the World Conference, or World Council, I'm sorry, of Indigenous Peoples. They had a meeting in Vancouver, decided to have a second meeting in uh, Sweden, Karuna, Sweden, hosted by the uh, Sami peoples in uh, Sápmi. So they asked me to come and chair a session on the ILO Convention 107. And I had not seen the ILO Convention 107. They said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll fax it to you. Uh, For some of the younger listeners in those days, we used to have a machine called a fax. So they send me this fax with Convention 107. So I studied it. And I chaired that meeting in Karuna, Sweden, in uh, August of 1977. And they felt and concluded that this legally binding convention, which was the only legally binding convention uh, since 1956, was very assimilationist, and they wanted changes. So they said to me, since you've chaired this meeting, you take it to Geneva and get it changed. <laughs> so I uh, said, okay, I'll, I'll go to Geneva. I went to Geneva, and I met with the uh, Director General of the International Labor Organization, the ILO. Was that in 1977, Willie? Yes. So that's when it started, 1977. Yes. So, but it started out at the ILO. Mm -hmm. And my mandate from the World Conference was to get it amended, to take away the assimilationist approach from the uh, convention. And fortunately, I had a meeting with the director general, and he said, do you know the process we use at the ILO? And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't. He said, it's a two-year process. Uh, You make your introduction at the first year we debate it. And if there is agreement, we adopt the convention as amended in the second year. It's a very fast process. Hmm. Um, The problem was they only dealt with labor issues. But uh, uh, luckily, they also looked at education, 
employment, training, in relation to labor. But they said to me, uh, I'm here to present the statement of principles that have been arrived at, at the World Conference, which we think are very important for treaty rights. These are a statement of 10 principles on treaty rights. It grew to 12 after that. But um, uh, they said, we can't deal with civil and political rights here. You're going to have to go to the United Nations for that. That's where, again, as great spirit works in mysterious ways, there just happened to be a meeting that was going to be happening after the ILO session on the uh, dispossession of lands of indigenous peoples and discrimination against mm-hmm. the indigenous peoples. So I went to that meeting in 1977 in Geneva, armed with the same information that we have concerns about our treaty violations and we have a statement of principles we want to present to the UN and perhaps seek your support. What happened after that is a working group was established, a working group on indigenous populations. Mm. And they held annual sessions with two mandates. One was to review recent developments and secondly, to set standards, standard setting uh, mandate. So during the first part of the agenda, these experts, uh, the working group, would discuss what happened around the world with indigenous peoples as far as they were informed. And then secondly, to begin thinking about setting a set of standards uh, that would deal with these issues that they're hearing about. But then a very fortunate thing happened uh, because we weren't allowed to speak at the time. We weren't even allowed to go into the UN for that matter to begin with. And the mm-hmm. story the story is that the elders uh, had four pipes, they had ceremony, and all of us marched in in a peaceful way into the UN with the elders leading the way with the pipes. Um, and that's how we got in to the building. Mm-hmm. So a working group was established with these two mandates. But one day, the chairperson, Her Excellency late Madame Erika Daes from Greece, said, you know, colleagues, we're talking about indigenous peoples and their rights, and they're sitting here in their room. Why don't we hear from them? And that opened the door for us to be able to take the floor and mm-hmm. present our arguments. We still had to be recognized as an NGO, a non-government organization, which we weren't. So we had to borrow NGO status from people that had that status. So we borrowed from the Four Directions Council. They give us their speaking time. When they put their name on the list to speak, we would take the floor and speak. So we introduced these principles that were drafted by the Wounded Knee Meeting and then the meeting in Karuna in Sweden. When they started talking about standard setting, we said, why don't you take these standards? They're indigenous drafted, indigenous thought is behind them, and you don't have to start from scratch. And of course, they said, no, we're, we're going to start from a blank page and we will design a set of standards for indigenous peoples. So a meeting was called in Costa Rica. We went over our our statement of principles and we actually added 
two more, three more principles into the declaration. For example, the very first principle was that we have a right to self-government. And I remember myself personally scratching out the word government. Instead of self-government, I put self-determination. So that was the first principle. So we advanced these principles over the years that it took as the agenda item would be open for standard setting, a topic would be discussed. It might be health, it might be education, it might be lands, territories, and resources. Uh, we made sure that treaties were on the agenda and we would argue for the principles that we decided ought to be the foundation for treaty rights. And so it took us, as you know, that whole 27 years to get there to eventually have the working group adopt the declaration. But in the meantime, two things happened that were quite critical to our success. We noticed that there was a group of states, four of them, uh, they, were, they were called Kansas states, that were meeting together before the sessions. We started introducing our arguments sort of one at a time as we felt when a treaty topic came up, what should be included. The uh, experts of the working group started taking in our submissions, our interventions, but it was very time-restricted so that we had to go back each year, and, and that's why it took so long, because different from ILO, ILO has a two-year process. The UN has a process for consensus to be reached. So that's why it kept going and going and going and going for all these years because consensus had to be reached. So mm. the Kansas states, Canada, uh, United States, New Zealand, and Australia used to have their own meetings to prepare before these uh, sessions. So we started having indigenous caucus meetings as well to prepare for the session coming up. And that was a very, very helpful process so because we were meeting each other for the first time, indigenous peoples from around the world with common mm -hmm. concerns, common issues, common challenges, the um, Kansas states were pretty aggressive, I'll say, in terms of putting out their positions. And we were prepared for them. So those, those Kansas states, Canada, USA, Australia, New Zealand, when the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was actually in, uh, endorsed by the United Nations in 2007, those were originally the only four that uh, uh, had reservations? Well, actually, those were the only four that voted against the resolution to adopt mm -hmm. and endorse the declaration. There were 11 abstentions, but there were 144 states that agreed with it. So it was adopted with those four states being against it. And that was in 2007. So just to be clear for our listeners, it took that long when the United Nations Declaration was first worked on the concept in 1977, right up until 2007, before the United Nations actually endorsed it. And there was 11 abstentions, 11 nation states abstained, and four opposed it. Canada, United States of America, Australia, New Zealand. But it, still, it was still passed, correct? Yes. And it is interesting to note that these four states had a lot of indigenous peoples within their nation states. So it was a large bulk of indigenous population included in those states. 
So by aligning with each other, they had a strong voice. And I remember being asked by the media what I thought when the vote is electronic voting, and I saw the all the green lights go on, and I thought, wow, this is good. And then the amber lights went on, and 11 amber lights went on. And when the chairman said, anyone opposed, the four red lights went on. Hmm. So media asked me what I thought, having been working on this for 27 years. I said I felt totally betrayed because many times Canada was sitting right there with us during the debates. I co-chaired some meetings Mm -hmm. uh, with Canada. In fact, the one on treaties, the Article 37, I uh, co-chaired that meeting, uh, that article, I mean, along with others, uh, other articles. But during the, the discussions, the second thing that happened along with this Kansas grouping was the chairman from Peru organized what he called the president's group of friends. And he would meet with us privately before the meetings to see what was going to be coming up because he noticed that this was taking really, really a long time. And he was mandated to do a chairman's draft of the declaration from what he was hearing from the floor. So that's what went into the declaration. And as he heard that there's, there were actually three drafts, the first draft was the one that we did. Mm-hmm. The second draft was the one that the working group did. The third draft was the one the chairman uh, did, the chairman's draft text of the uh, declaration. So when it came time to debate the uh, declaration itself, article by article, no one had introduced officially to the UN an article to be debated. And since there had been agreement at the uh, subcommission on the declaration articles, I took the floor on each one to introduce the article so that it could be officially introduced and open for debate. We left the preambular paragraphs till the end after the articles were discussed. That's how the, the procedure went. When the declaration was adopted in Geneva, some states were upset and they said, we're going to have our own process. When we get to New York, it'll be only states. Indigenous peoples will be not allowed to to speak or participate. Because if you remember, that was at the working group decision that made that for themselves to allow us to speak. So when the states only debates went, that's where some amendments were made. And when I asked Canada, why are you opposed to us? What do you think you're losing for opposing our declaration? They chose to go to the side of opposition. So they hired a firm to give them reasons, 10 reasons why they should not support the declaration. Well, if you tell a law, law firm to do that, that's what they'll do. They'll find 10 reasons. A lot of them were ridiculous because I went through them with them after. Those four Kansas uh, countries, so Canada, USA, Australia, New Zealand, changed their minds. They've since now all four supported, correct? Yes, actually, the, the first ones to change their views were those that had abstained. Those that ab- abstained started changing their votes to a yes. Okay. So we kept asking the four states to reconsider their positions. And eventually, uh, they all did. So now it's the widest supported 
declaration by consensus in the world. There's no one state that opposes it now, so it's a very, very widely supported. All right, so now let's. That's the good uh, background about the UN declaration, and so now let's fast forward to Canada now as one out of the uh, the nation states within the United Nations. They've come up with this uh, bill called Bill C-15, and to to give legal effect, I guess is a simple way to put it in Canada, the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So if Bill C-15 is passed, what do you, what difference do you think it will make for First Nations people living in our territories, whether you're on the reserve or living in the cities, rural, urban, northern or remote? How do you think that will make a difference for our people? Well, I think it'll be one of three things. First of all, once it's implemented, it can be used by the First Nations or the Métis or Inuit to apply to situations in their communities. That's one aspect. But the second aspect, actually, is that courts have already been using the declaration. Mm-hmm. Indigenous peoples have already been using the declaration. For example, we in our community adopted it in our constitution, mm-hmm. the UN Declaration. They've been, we've been using it since, and it has been working for us. But the third example I might use is that the when there's an international treaty like the, I'll say, the Migratory Birds Convention Treaty, which was a treaty between Canada, uh, United States, and Mexico, which actually impacted our treaty right to hunt, Mm -hmm. our treaty right to fish and trap. In order for that treaty to be implemented, there had to be legislation adopted by Canada. So there's a Migratory Birds Convention Act that's in place in Canada. Mm -hmm. So similar to this, it's an international instrument. Yes, it's a declaration. Some say it's non-legally binding. There's disagreement on that. But we need an act to implement the declaration in Canada so that the local community uh, leadership, let's say, can can utilize it like we've been doing. A most recent example is that we amalgamated all our 11 schools on the uh, Muscochese. We used the declaration very substantially in the uh, authorization for us to take over our own school authority. So we've been using it even before Canada has this implementation act in place because we, acting as an indigenous government, passed the act and put it into our constitution. Hmm, That's a strong statement about self-determination self-government. Now, now, William, I'm going to switch. You're a, a commissioner for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and you're on the, the TRC, and you called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples as a framework for reconciliation. What does that mean to our listeners, like calling the Declaration as a framework for reconciliation in Canada? Thank you for that. It's a very important question. It allows me to uh, explain a little bit of my personal experience with the, uh, not only was I in residential school for 14 years, but as a commissioner, the most unique commission in the world, because it court ordered, it, it focuses on children and also asks us to design a path for reconciliation. But first find out the truth of what happened in these schools. And we went to different communities. The courts also told us to have 
seven national events to inform Canada about this history. At the time, it was known as the darkest, saddest, most unknown chapter in Canadian history. When a poll was done about national awareness in Canada, it was less than 5% mm-hmm. knew about. They might have heard the words residential schools. I don't think they actually knew what happened inside these schools. So our task was to find out the truth, which we did. I myself, because of my own legal background, asked myself many times, can I now say I know the truth from what I've heard? And many times I asked myself that. But throughout the hearings, we kept hearing people many times back to their childhood in their adult voice in tears calling for a healing. Mm. And some said, why don't we use the declaration? Why are we not using the declaration to help us? So after the hearings were finished, the three of us as commissioners asked ourselves, what were the 10 key principles that we heard throughout these 7,000 stories? Some private, some public, some in uh, uh, national events. We thought we should use the declaration as the principle for reconciliation because it's an all-inclusive declaration. By that, I mean it has self-determination, self-government. It has the health, education, lands, territories, and resources. It has the right to development. It has all these different nine thematic areas, but four fundamental pillars. The first pillar being Mm self-determination. The second one being culture, because there's... 30, over 30 references to culture in the Declaration, lands, territories, and resources, and lastly, consent. Those are the four main pillars, in my view, of the Declaration. So we thought, let's begin with this as a framework on how we go about restoring respectful relationships. When we ask ourselves, what does reconciliation mean? Uh, I said, uh, well, I know a word that, that captures it in Cree, but we agreed to use to restore respectful relationships. That's mm-hmm. what reconciliation means. But to me, it means we win, which is a t- city in uh, Treaty 6 territory, which means having good relations. That's yeah. what reconciliation is about. So we thought it was important that we begin with that first principle and declare it to be uh, an umbrella framework under which we could deal with all of these other issues, whether it was education, health, whether it was spirituality, whether it was lands, territories, and resources, whether it was uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. Mm-hmm. So we have these thematic areas where we grouped our 94 calls to action now, Willie, this, this bill now, Bill C-15, it follows on the private member's bill, Bill C-262, the private member's bill that Romeo Saganash introduced when he was a member of parliament. And that private member's bill got support from all across Canada, from chiefs and leaders, tribal councils, PTOs. It was even supported unanimously in the House of Commons. But unfortunately, as a private member's bill, it didn't get the same focus within the Senate. And it died there. It didn't get ratified mm-hmm. into law. And then the Chiefs of Canada said, National Chief Perry Bellegarde, we're going to mandate you to 
to, to work with this liberal government to try get a bill in place that's at least as strong as or better than Bill C-262. So that was the mandate given to us uh, by chiefs and assembly. And so we worked hard and pushed this government, working with the prime minister and, and David Lametti, the minister of, of justice, attorney general. And that's where Bill C-15 came in. Now, how would you compare the two? Well, I actually haven't been a member of parliament myself, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, early in my uh, days, I tried to make two motions. They failed at that time. One was to adopt the uh, ILO Convention 169, and secondly, to uh, adopt the UN Declaration. They didn't get drawn from the hat that they put the motions in. So it never came up when I was a member of parliament. But thankfully, Romeo Saganash was successful in introducing a private member's bill, as you said, that was unanimously supported by government. Uh, yes, it stalled at the Senate. And when we uh, went into an election, of course, all the everything dies on the order paper. So we basically had to start over. And that's when you, thanks to your work, uh, there was a commitment made to introduce a new bill. This time it would be a government bill mm -hmm. because it's very difficult, uh, as my, in my experience, to have a private member's bill adopted both at the House and at the Senate. But if it's a government bill, especially if it's a nonpartisan bill, uh, and then it has a lot more likelihood of being adopted both at the House of Commons and at the Senate. And my dream has always been that this would be a nonpartisan bill because our lives are at stake in this bill. Those that vote against it, if they're voting against it, they're voting against one of the articles of the Declaration that says this, this declaration is about the survival, the dignity, and well-being of Indigenous peoples. That's what they're voting against, our well-being, our survival and our dignity. So the difference then, as you ask, when I compare the two, there's some very significant improvements to the bill, not, not to put Member Parliament Saganashes aside, uh, but to use it as the floor. And yes. then we're, there's about 16 that I counted improvements to Bill 262 in Bill C-15. So it's much stronger it covers more area included in the legislation to implement the UN Declaration. We'll talk about that. We have an upcoming forum coming up on February 10 and 11, a virtual forum for our chiefs. So we'll be able to discuss those in more detail at that time. But and you're saying in 16 areas, it is stronger. So the Liberal Government Bill C-15 is stronger in certain areas, building upon the good work of C-262. So that's a powerful statement. And one of the things we talked about was how it was C-262 was supported by the House of Commons, by all parties at one point. And so I had the uh, the leader as well of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole. Uh, he came on my Akamemuk podcast a little while ago, and we discussed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and he raised a concern. I'm not a fan of UNDRIP, and here's the reason. Our Supreme Court of Canada developed the duty to consult an Indigenous engagement far before the UN did any work on this topic. I don't want us waiting for some body in New York to say we need to do better and we need better outcomes in terms of reconciliation. So that was Aaron O'Toole coming on, and that's what he said on our podcast. 
And how would you reply to that? Well, I would reply to that, that it's like shooting in the dark. When you shoot in the dark, you'll hit it every time. But the problem with his argument, as I see it, as I just heard it, is that the duty to consult was a court decision. And yes, there's a legal duty to consult. But that's not where it stops. If there's a deep impact of a project, as you go in a spectrum from a low impact to medium impact to a deep impact, that duty to consult becomes stronger and stronger in terms of having to consult uh, deeper with Indigenous peoples to the point of consent. So you can't say duty to consult is it. You have to go through this full spectrum. The duty to consult, if there's deep impact, then you must get obtain the consent of the Indigenous peoples. And that's another Supreme Court of Canada court case, by the way. Mm-hmm. He, he quoted one. Yes, that's true. There's legal duty to consult. But a follow-up court case goes to the spectrum of consent. And yes, Supreme Court of Canada may come before UN Declaration, but the treaty right to consent came before the Supreme Court of Canada decision. So that's where he misses the mark. If you start with consent, the treaty right to consent, then you do the spectrum of the legal duty to consult and on deeper impact to obtain the consent of Indigenous peoples, then you've got the right interpretation of it, in my view. Now, Article 32 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, it says, Governments shall consult and cooperate in good faith with Indigenous peoples in order to obtain their free, prior and informed consent, prior to the approval of any project affecting their lands and territories and other resources. Now, this is the issue that people across Canada are talking about. Industry is talking about this. You've got six provincial governments that are are lobbying the federal government to to slow down uh, the development and implementation of uh, Bill C-15 because they fear that free prior and informed consent somehow uh, gives First Nations a veto power over development. What are your views on that? And is it a veto in your opinion? You will not find the word veto once in any one of the 46 articles of the Declaration. So let's put veto aside. And the curious thing that I saw in in the letter from the six ministers uh, that signed on to that letter to hold off Bill C-15 is that now they are saying they have a veto. And they are saying we have not been consulted. Well, it's kind of curious and ironic to hear states complain about lack of consultation when they do that to us all the time. Mm-hmm. So which is it? And why are they now, through the Minister of Justice of Alberta, for example, in his letter saying that they have a right to veto? The provinces do. So mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're using the same argument against us, but then use it for themselves to try and block the movement on Bill 15. So I I think that's very hypocritical, if I may say that. But also, the veto issue has been very manipulated and mischaracterized by media, especially. What it is, in my view, is that it's a call on us to work together. Article 32, when it says you must consult the Indigenous peoples in cooperation with Indigenous peoples, those are words of reconciliation. So when you get together in a safe space and have a a discussion 
on which way we go forward, that search for consensus is a call on us to work together. And that's what Article 32 does. Article 32 does governments or states before or corporations, before you go in there to develop on those lands, you meet with these people and come together and have a consensus. And then if you've got consensus, you can go and build. And that's what free prior and informed consent in that article means to me. It's a call to us to work together, to discuss, to come to consensus and go from there. Okay, Willie. There are also some concerns from some First Nations people and leaders that Bill C-15 will somehow override uh, our sovereignty and uh, hurt our treaty relationship somehow with the Crown. How do you respond to them? Because I know I've heard these arguments from different scholars, lawyers as well, that why they're trying to drum up support for not supporting Bill C-15. What are your thoughts on that? How would you answer that? Well, if you look at Article 37.2 of the Declaration, you'll find the answer right there. cannot use the Declaration or any part of the Declaration uh, to take away from the, the rights that uh, Indigenous peoples have on treaty. So it cannot override it. I think it'll support it, in fact, if it's adopted. My preference, though, National Chief, is to use the higher standard of uh, the OAS Declaration. That's the Organization on American States, OAS Declaration. Yes, the Article on Treaties. Because the UN Declaration on Treaty, Article 37 says, treaties must be honored and respected. And this third word, very rarely used, ought to begin to be used. It says, honor and respect treaties and also enforce the treaties. Mm-hmm. OAS takes those same words, honor, respect, enforce the treaties according to the original spirit and intent and as understood by Indigenous peoples. That's the full bundle of understanding of our elders of treaty. Mm -hmm. That's the higher standard, and that's the one that should be used. And once Bill C-15 passes to implement the UN Declaration, It'll give us an opportunity then to engage the OAS declaration and, and use the higher standard, mm. which, will, which will bring in those. So I think that it's, um, well, it's wrong to say that, that it will hurt or, or violate because 37.2 reads, nothing in this declaration, the UN declaration, may be interpreted as diminishing or eliminating the rights of indigenous peoples contained in treaties, agreements, and constructive arrangements. So nothing Mm. can be used in this declaration to diminish or eliminate treaty rights. It's right in the declaration. That's why we need it to be implemented. That's a powerful statement, and I think we've got a lot more work to do going forward when uh, the Organization of American States Declaration has that higher article on treaty implementation, especially those words, enforce and according to the spirit and intent. Our elders have always said that that the treaty should be mm-hmm. honored and enforced and recognized according to the original spirit and intent of those clauses. And that refers to the medicine chest clause in Treaty 6. That refers to uh, the little red brick schoolhouse in Treaty 4. Like the government, the crown will provide that to our people and the list will go on. To continue our avocations of hunting, fishing and trapping and gathering throughout the territories we're sharing with the newcomers to Turtle Island, all those things. So spirit and intent is very powerful. Also, if I may, uh, Chief, it includes 
oral testimony. Mm-hmm. The written text is only half of the story of treaty. Oral yeah. testimony, as we understood it with our ceremonies, that makes it a fuller understanding of treaty. So oral testimony comes in there as well in terms of uh, interpretation when you use the OAS declaration. Lots of work to do. Chief Willie, I want to acknowledge you. Thank you for all your hard work. And this question that I asked lastly to all my guests on the Akamimu podcast in light of all of the challenges, in light of everything that we've just talked about facing Bill C-15, it's been introduced for first reading, it's going to go to second reading, you know, and then eventually to the Senate and back and forth. And uh, there will be changes to make it stronger and better proposed on both sides. Um, in light of everything First Nations have faced, you know, colonization, oppression, and the Indian Act, the residential schools, I always ask, like, what gives you hope? Well, the instructions of my elders when I began this journey and what they wanted to see come out of the work, I guess the energy was the akamemo, akamemo, keep trying and keep trying. I've seen the loss of hope in our people. I've seen the loss of hope in a grade eight classroom when I went to a classroom and I asked, how's it going, guys? And and they said to me, well, we're just here waiting here to, to die. And I looked at their eyes, and it's not one thing that you want to see when children have lost hope mm. because they don't have a future. So sometimes I say to chiefs, let's practice the politics of hope. Let's give our children a hopeful future so that they don't lose that hope uh, at such early age and the couldn't say it better any better than to say akamemo akamemotan mm. there's a better tomorrow and uh i think that um it's interesting that i see it also in inmates in prison they always say to me when i used to visit them i'm hoping to get out of here someday because I, when i get out of here i'm going to be better you know i'm going to smarten up and, and all that but they have hope, and you can see the hope in their eyes. And uh, as opposed to a loss of hope in children's eyes, it's the effort and the joy of trying hard as you can, or harder than you can sometimes, to work for our people that drives you and that gives you hope that one of these days we will see that success. We will see that as we're working right now with Royal Ascent. That gives me hope. Oh boy, Chief Willie Little Child, thank you so much for coming on their Akamema podcast. Thank you. Hey, hey. And I want to thank all the people for listening to the Akamema podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. Give us a rating and tell your friends about us on social media. And as always, we want to give a big shout out to the Red Dog Singers of the Treaty 4 Territory in Southern Saskatchewan for providing our theme music. Until next time, I'm Perry Belgard, National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations.